0: There's a lot of history of Texas. I'm going to run through some of the early history quickly and, and work our way up to Fisher. Texas, of course, was a formerly segregated university, as was Virginia and all the public universities in the South. Sweat v. Painter, in 1950, the Supreme Court ordered the University of Texas Law School to admit African-Americans. Um, <coughs> Uh, Later, the administrative uh, agencies and especially the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education became active in enforcing desegregation obligations. And in 1983, uh, UT Austin was administratively ordered to use affirmative action to achieve the goal of desegregation. Uh, Those orders were backed by a threat to cut off uh, federal funds. Desegregation was measured by racial identifiability, which is to say by the absence of diversity. The Supreme Court cases on K-12 desegregation repeatedly reaffirmed that understanding, that racially identifiable schools meant you were not yet desegregated. Uh, The first affirmative action decision of the Supreme Court is University of California versus Bakke in 1978. That was a rigid quota. There were 100 seats in the University of Cal Davis Medical School. Uh, 16 were reserved for minorities. Uh, The court split four to four to one. Uh, Justice Powell wrote the the one, the Deciding Opinion. He said race could be considered as part of a general pursuit of diversity in higher education and it is to Powell's opinion that we owe the emphasis on diversity in all these cases and the relative inattention to other uh, important uh, government interests. Um, The first lawsuit against Texas was filed in 1992. It was filed against, uh, against the law school. Uh, Hopwood versus Texas. Um, the law school had one of the most conservative affirmative action plans in the country. It had carefully limited the degree of racial preference to ensure that affirmative action admits would be competitive once they arrived, but no one on either side seemed to care about that. Um, the federal district judge was Sam Sparks. He was appointed by the first President Bush. He was deeply skeptical of affirmative action, but he was persuaded by the evidence, and he upheld the law school's affirmative action plan. Uh, The Fifth Circuit reversed in 1996. A sweeping opinion required colorblind admissions. (coughs) It said the university's desegregation obligations were irrelevant. Uh, Race could not be considered. Uh, It said Justice Powell's opinion in Bakke was no longer good law. Um, And it also curiously said it trusted the university to comply so there was no need to issue an injunction. Uh, And in part because of that, the Supreme Court denied cert. Um, And Justice Ginsburg fought a little concurrence and said, you know, this court reviews judgments, not opinions, and there's no judgment here. Um, On remand, the law school re-ran the entire 1992 admissions process uh, and proved by preponderance of the evidence that none of the four plaintiffs would have been admitted in a colorblind system. And therefore, they mostly gone elsewhere to law school by then anyway, but nobody got admitted nobody got damages. that proof was possible in part because the process in 1992 gave heavy weight to something called the Texas index which was a regression equation of undergraduate GPA and LSAT scores Um, and in part because and it's often true in these cases anybody who applied for admission has standing but often they weren't close to being admissible and that was true of some of the four Um, we attempted in that remand litigation to set up a second shot at Supreme Court review of the underlying issue, but once again, uh, cert was denied. Uh, The Texas legislature responded to Hopwood with the top 10% law. Anyone who graduated in the top 10% of a Texas high school uh, is guaranteed admission to any public university in the state. Um, I feared uh, disaster, frankly. I feared that would bring a lot of students who couldn't hack it at uh, UT Austin. Uh, But with the right support, the 10% law has turned out surprisingly well. The university had to go recruit those kids. They didn't just apply. Um, The 10% law by itself didn't do anything. Uh, But with a lot of recruitment effort invested behind it, uh, students began to come from schools they had not been coming from before. Um, The university provided a lot of support when they arrived, uh, both mentoring help and financial aid, and they have performed uh, recently well. And everyone who was eligible under the 10% law wanted to come to Austin. They did not want to go to St. Angelo State or lots of other uh, places scattered around Texas. So Austin was overwhelmed. It lost control of its entering class. <clears throat> it eventually had a cap put in place. It doesn't have to take more than 75% of the entering class uh, under the 10% law. Um, the effects of Hopwood were dramatic. African-American enrollment in the law school dropped to four the next year out of a class of 500. Um, For undergraduates, African-American enrollment had generally been running 5 to 6% of the class uh, with Affirmative Action. It dropped to 2.7% in the year after Hopwood. Uh, It gradually recovered to 4.1% as we learned how to use the 10% plan, uh, but that was still considerably lower than what had been achieved uh, with Affirmative Action. Hispanic enrollment was superficially better uh, with percentages in the low to mid-teens. Uh, but that was mostly because the Hispanic population in Texas was and is surging. Um, College-age population of Texas was 40% Hispanic in uh, 2000 and 53% minority. Those numbers would both be higher today. And there were similar experiences in California, Florida, and Michigan when affirmative action ended by by political decisions in those states, uh, minority enrollment plummeted. Um, And in 2003, the Michigan cases came to the Supreme Court, uh, Grutter and Gratz. Gratz was the undergraduate case. It was a very mechanical system with uh, points awarded for minority status, and that was struck down. Uh, Grutter was the law school case. That was a holistic review plan, and it was upheld. The court relied on diversity and on Justice Powell, uh, but the court completely changed the meaning of diversity. Uh, Kim is going to say diversity is not the right thing to talk about here, and, and he's right. Uh, but in Grutter, diversity became almost a code word for a whole range of other things. For Justice Powell, diversity had been a First Amendment interest in diverse ideas in the classroom. Uh, diversity in Grutter started there, but it went much further, and it went to 14th Amendment interest. Uh, the court said a racially diverse student body helps overcome racial stereotypes, helps prepare students to live and work in a diverse uh, society. A a racially diverse student body trains a diverse set of future leaders who must be both diverse and excellent. That was in response to amicus briefs filed by corporate America and by retired military about the importance of affirmative action to what they were doing. Uh, And finally, the court said, diversity is essential to the political legitimacy of our institutions. And I'm quoting now. In order to, c- to cultivate a set of leaders with legitimacy in the eyes of the citizenry, it is necessary that the path to leadership be visibly open to talented and qualified individuals of every race and ethnicity. All members of our heterogeneous society must have confidence uh, in the openness and integrity of the educational institutions that provide this training." And you know, it was perfectly clear uh, in, in Texas in the reaction to Hopwood, uh, The university lacked legitimacy. It it was viewed as a racial discriminator if it had hardly any minority students and if it was not doing anything uh, to uh, attract more. Um, And very important in Grutter, the court said the university does not have to sacrifice excellence to achieve diversity. Scalia and Thomas dissenting said there's no compelling government interest in having a great public law school. If you want to go to a great law school, go to a private. Michigan could have all the diversity if it wanted if it just gave up on those restrictive admission standards. If it admitted students by lottery, it would have all the diversity that was in the applicant pool, and there was no compelling reason why it shouldn't do that, and the majority explicitly rejected that. One virtue of a properly constructed affirmative action plan is that it can achieve uh, both excellence and diversity, and I'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. Uh, Despite all that, the guter opinion is not a green light. It said universities must consider race-neutral means in good faith. They must demonstrate why race-neutral means will not work uh, before they can use affirmative action. That is a critical obligation, and my impression is that most schools have not bothered to do it. Uh, One lesson of the affirmative action cases is that you're supposed to confuse things and not be explicit about your racial preferences, uh, and that has deterred many schools from undertaking to explain why race-neutral means don't work. Uh, But the truth is they don't, and Texas took seriously the obligation to explain why not. It spent a whole year in the wake of Grutter and produced a 40-page single-space report. I had a hand in drafting the law school piece of that report. Uh, I tried to get some of the same ideas into the undergraduate section. We got some of them in. We didn't get all of them. The undergraduate admissions people by this point were snake-bit after 10 years of litigation. And they were reluctant to criticize the 10% law, which was the main tool that they had available. Um, And they devised a policy that was probably too cautious and didn't do enough good. So we didn't get everything in, but we got enough in to satisfy the court and Fisher. And the court relied heavily on that report and on uh, affidavits that tracked that report. So to understand why race-neutral means don't work, uh, first think about how a well-designed affirmative action plan works. Um, It evaluates all the applicants on the same academic criteria. Whatever criteria that school prefers. It might be just grades and test scores, but it's usually a lot more than that. Uh, But whatever the criteria, everyone gets evaluated on the same criteria. And the best applicants of each ethnic group as judged by those academic criteria are the ones who get admitted. The weakest students who would have been admitted under a colorblind plan are replaced by some of the strongest students who would not have been admitted under a colorblind plan. And both statistical models and empirical research show uh, that that approach achieves the most diversity and the most academic excellence. The central problem with race-neutral means is they all have to rely on proxies. They rely on something that correlates with race, uh, but is not race. Uh, They cannot admit the academically strongest minority students. They have to admit the minority student who fits the proxy. And they have to admit white students who fit that proxy as well. Uh, so, the proxy admits fill a much larger percentage of the class uh, than with uh, direct affirmative action. If you use class rank as in the 10% plan, you admit everyone on a single criterion. Uh, you give up other forms of diversity. <coughs> you take a top 10% student of any race, uh, even from a low performing high school, over, for example, a high achieving minority student who's in the top 11% of uh, a competitive, uh, mostly white high school. If you use economic disadvantage, you admit low incomes of all races and there are lots of low income whites and you have to reject academically stronger minority students from families with higher incomes. In the law school of Texas, we use geography uh, as a proxy for Hispanics uh, because there are overwhelmingly Hispanic counties along the Rio Grande from El Paso to Brownsville. Um, so you admit applicants of all ethnicities from those counties and you may have to pass over academically stronger minorities of ethne, uh, uh, who come from elsewhere. The bottom line is you get less diversity, more damaged academic standards, and that has been repeatedly uh, demonstrated. The Texas planet issue in Fisher was a hybrid. Seventy-five percent of the class was admitted under 10 percent law. Uh, holistic review for the rest but in a very limited way in part because the applicant pool is so enormous, the undergraduate class is huge at Texas uh, and in part, as I said, because the undergraduate admissions people had been intimidated. So each applicant got an academic I- index score from 1 to 6 based on grades and test scores, and a personal achievement index from 1 to 6 based on holistic review of the rest of the file. Race was a factor of a factor in the personal achievement index, uh, and Fisher argued that a factor of a factor didn't make enough difference to do any good or serve a compelling government interest. We weren't considering race enough. Um, <clears throat> Then the admissions people grouped all the applicants on a six-by-six grid, and they admitted by cells. So the six-six people got admitted first, and then the five-six people, and the six-five people, and then the six-four people, and so forth, uh, until they had filled up the class. And they admitted a whole cell at a time. They didn't make individualized decisions within it. They didn't know the racial makeup of a cell. Race had been considered in assigning the personal achievement score. And then they just admitted people mechanically out of the cells that resulted from that. Um, (coughs) So Fisher is a 4-3. Kagan was recused. Scalia had died. Kennedy tried to keep the opinion narrow and unique to Texas. And there was a lot of things unique about that plan in Texas. Uh, But what is true at Texas is true at all selective schools. Uh, uh, Race-neutral means don't work. And Kennedy pretty much explained why. And his attempt to keep it narrow, I don't think, uh, is successful. He reaffirmed that schools do not have to sacrifice academic excellence in pursuit of diversity. Um, He said the top 10% law was at odds with the goals of true diversity, because it selected everybody on the basis of a single criterion. Uh, He rejected the Catch-22 arguments that Fisher was making. Um, He said, giving only a little bit of weight to race is a sign of narrow tailoring, not a sign of unconstitutionality. Uh, She said we had to quantify critical mass If we'd done that, she would have said that's a quota. And Kennedy said, no, you don't have to quantify it. You're forbidden to quantify it. Um, He did say you have to have uh, a clearly articulable policy definition of what you mean by diversity and critical mass. Texas had done that. They'd taken it straight out of Grutter, and he seemed to uh, accept that. Um, Fisher said Texas already had critical mass, citing total numbers of minorities over 20%. That's adding Hispanics, Asians... African-Americans, everybody, all together. Um, Kennedy accepted evidence that minority enrollment had largely stagnated, uh, that minority students still felt isolated, and that most classes had zero or one minority students. And she said Texas should try harder with race neutral means. And says, what do you mean? They've been trying harder for 20 years. Uh, and she pointed to no other means that had not already been tried. Uh, before the election, higher ed thought it had uh, five solid votes in future cases because Kagan would no longer be recused and with Clinton's election Merrick Garland or somebody would make six and we no longer have to depend on Kennedy uh, now of course the future looks very different the next case is up to Kennedy if he, thinks it's, if he thinks he wrote it narrowly he may turn it into something narrow and if Trump gets a second appointment all bets are off uh, it's important that schools not be sitting ducks uh, they should do their studies and be prepared to document why race-neutral means don't work and be prepared to persuade Kennedy there are new cases pending against Harvard and North Carolina. Good news about that is they're not suing Virginia. Um, let somebody else fight this fight. Uh, we will see what happens as those cases go up.
1: Um, hi, everybody. It's uh, always great to be back in Charlottesville. So, uh, as said, I, I graduated in '96. I uh, sort of came to Latham and Watkins specifically to work on the Gruder case uh, and and that and the the Fisher case have been really the highlights of my professional career so far it's been enormous fun um, and something that I, I know our entire law firm is really proud of the role we were privileged to play in in these cases um, and you know it's always fun to win particularly when it's important right um, so j- just you know speaking as a, a practitioner what it felt like from the inside for somebody who had, you know, been for involved in, in these fights for a long time, when, when Fisher came across the transom, it had a, an Alice in Wonderland kind of feel to it. I mean, the UT was being uh, criticized, as Professor Laycock said, for the fact that it appeared to be putting very little weight on race in its holistic admissions process and, you know, that wasn't affecting very many decisions. Um, I thought that was a good thing, right? Um, they were being uh, criticized for not crisply articulating a numerical target, which I also thought was supposed to be a good thing, right? Um, That we didn't have a quota. UT was being criticized for having a policy that everybody acknowledged was exactly the same as the policy that Michigan Law School pursued in Grutter for 25% of the class, right? Um, Plaintiffs foreswore any challenge to Grutter as precedent um, and admitted that the policy was basically the same for that 25% as, as it was um, in Michigan. Um, and, and the only, you know, real difference is that there was, you know, another 75% of the class that in Texas that they admitted were being admitted on race-neutral grounds, right? Well, everyone agreed that, that Texas could have done what uh, Michigan did for 100% of the class. Why in the world can't they do uh, the same thing for 25% of the class that they could have done for 100 um, and, and maybe, um, most strangely, the, the plaintiffs were lumping together in a really conspicuous way you know, people from every racial group in the way that they did all of their statistics. The, the real problem uh, from the beginning in the, the Fisher litigation and, and the reason why the University of Texas was targeted for that case, I'm sure, is that they had uh, already achieved arguably the, the sorts of numbers that the University of Michigan Law School had said that they wanted in Grutter, right? I mean, when we articulated the, the critical mass concept in Gruder, we, we articulated it in sort of, you know, 12 to 20 percent kind of terms as the zone in which we thought that the, the educational benefits of diversity might be achieved at Michigan. Um, and you know, however you slice the numbers, Texas uh, was pretty high, particularly for Hispanic students, was maybe in the 14 percent range, something like that. Um, But if you looked at, at, say, African-American students separately, as of course Texas did, um, you know, it was nowhere close to what anyone would consider a critical mass. And, you know, we had all thought that the objection to affirmative action was lumping people together in groups, not treating them uh, as individually. And and here we, you know, have the supposed opponents wanting to lump everybody together even more. So, uh, and then lastly, um, it, it sure appeared to all of us that the plaintiff Abigail Fisher lacked standing uh, under any conception of standing that self-respecting conservative justices would ordinarily recognize. So it, it was, you know, sort of a strange, uh, sort of a strange case. Um, my, our first reaction to it as a strategic matter was that we had to convince the court that there was some important aspect of diversity that the percentage plan wasn't satisfying. Right? That there was there was some gap in the class. And everyone understood, and, and you know, Justice Ginsburg had explained uh, in Grutter itself that the way the percentage plan worked was by trading on racial segregation in Texas high schools. Um, you know, very clear patterns of segregation in the southern part of uh, of the state, and then in the inner cities in Dallas and Houston, and you know, essentially admitting the the top rank of racially segregated high schools. So who's missing from that picture? If, you know, it. Well, you're missing the minority students who come from private schools that don't rank, schools from out of state. And uh, the uh, as Professor Laycock noted, you're missing the, the kids who just missed the top 10% at you know, the most competitive integrated suburban high schools in the state. And so we tried to articulate for the, you know, the court a vision of why it matters that those people might not be there if we, if we couldn't do holistic admissions. It turned out to be a very dangerous thing to do because it was easily caricatured. You know, I don't know if anyone followed, but you know, in in the press and the briefs, um, and even at oral argument at the court, we got a lot of blowback to the effect of, well, you know, so Texas is saying that it would rather have uh, rich minority kids than poor minority kids. I mean, obviously that was always preposterous. That Texas wanted diversity, and you know, we always thought that diversity was sort of a a range of of people and and backgrounds. Um, You know, in particular, we thought that the the last thing that you would want if you were constructing a policy to achieve the uh, educational benefits of diversity would be a a policy that would pull, you know, a a large and disproportionate share of your minority admits from, you know, a relatively narrow range of geographies and backgrounds. Because... you, and particularly if that relatively narrow range was a, a, a narrow range of relatively disadvantaged backgrounds. Y- in part because you risk reinforcing the same stereotypes that you're trying to break down, right? I mean, part of what you're trying to show to uh, the rest of the student body and help them understand uh, is the enormous range of difference that is out there in the world, and, and you don't want to you know, give them a, a disproportionate slice. The, the admission staff at Texas also believed strongly, and, and I shared the intuition, that the, the pool of minority students who had done really well at, at big, integrated, highly competitive suburban high schools would be a, at least a target-rich environment for what you might call bridge builders, right? People who are comfortable and accustomed to reaching across boundaries and you know you can't, um, you can't generalize too much but target-rich environment at least Um, Texas had a real problem with uh, racial isolation in uh, on campus and a big part of what they were trying to achieve was you know to break that down so so part of the policy was you know how can we how can we find these uh, students who are really gonna reach across boundaries I was for uh, for what it's worth always um, very confident or or at least optimistic that we were gonna win the case Um, and that view was not always widely shared in the in the team you know there were a lot of Data points suggesting the contrary, including that the Supreme Court granted cert twice when we had won in the Fifth Circuit, which is never good. Um, but I just – I had this uh, deep sense that I couldn't imagine the Supreme Court writing the decision they would have to write to rule against us. That, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States is not going to write an opinion that says the University of Texas's affirmative action policy is uniquely unconstitutional because it puts too little weight on race because it, it doesn't have a firm enough numerical target, um, because y- you have to lump African American and Hispanic students together when figuring out whether you have uh, a diverse student body. I and mean, it just didn't seem like the sort of thing that the Supreme Court could get away with saying. Uh, and in particular, I didn't think in you know 2014 to 2016 that the Supreme Court could possibly write uh, an opinion saying that you know, Justice O'Connor's 25 years have run out, right? That we are, you know, now in uh, the blissful post-racial utopia that uh, we all hope for. In the wake of Ferguson and Dylan Roof's white supremacist terrorism in Charleston, you know, that, that was all the, the backdrop for uh, what was in the news every day while the Supreme Court was considering these cases. So I, I thought, you know, there's just, there's, at the end of the day, there's no way we can lose. Um, And, of course, I turned out to be right, but it was a very, very rocky path from here to there. I mean, uh, so it has been reported that we were all set to lose the first round, um, but that Justice Sotomayor flipped the court by circulating a very impassioned dissent, uh, taking the court to task for, you know, basically not understanding what American society is all about. And so we ended up with a um, sort of compromise remand decision in the first round, and then in the second round, uh, after the court granted cert distressingly again, there was a period where we pretty much knew that we had lost. Because with Justice Kagan recused, really the best that we could do was a 4-4 tie, affirmants. And when they do that, they almost never write an opinion. And so when you know, a couple of months had gone by, and we didn't have a short procurium saying you know, the opinion of the Fifth Circuit is affirmed by an equally divided court, there really was no other explanation other than that we had lost. But then, of course, Justice Scalia passed away, and something happened. Um, and maybe we'll never know. You know, it seems the the most reasonable inference to draw that Justice Kennedy changed his mind uh, along the way in the deliberations about the case. Um, and we get this remarkable uh, opinion that, uh, that really goes, you know, I think significantly farther than Grutter did on some... Uh, although maybe that was not Justice Kennedy's intention. I think the, the opinion makes clear that universities get an, a great deal of deference on their articulation of their own mission and whether uh, diversity and in what form is important to that mission. Um, of course, they made clear that it's not a failure of narrow tailoring to do only a little bit of affirmative action, which is also good to know. Um, but I think the the most important aspect of it, at least to me, is the sort of final, um, finally making clear that the race neutral alternatives side of the strict scrutiny analysis, you know, it isn't going to be a- as big of a barrier as a lot of people thought for a, for a long time. There, there clearly is always going to be very strict scrutiny of whether you're running a secret quota. Um, but the other prong of it, you know, whether you adequately consider race neutral alternatives, has been defanged, I think, to a substantial extent um, by the fact that all of the alternatives have been tried and, and essentially discredited at this point. I, I agree with that. Um, and, and maybe that is part of the uh, explanation for the phenomenon Professor Rutherglen has identified that the court is kind of uh, loosey-goosey with the summary judgment standards uh, in Fisher. You know, It's really just not specific to the factual record of any particular case. that. Um, that you don 't have to radically lower your academic standards, um, that you know essentially all of the uh, effective race neutral alternatives that people have proposed would require you to do so um, and the The Supreme Court has now repudiated i think in substantial measure the percentage plan kind of strategy in a way that doesn 't just kill the percentage plans but but also makes clear that you don 't have to try any of the Know, sort of proxy strategies that, that people have cooked up, right? You know, you, people are ever more creative with purportedly race-neutral plans that focus on one thing or another only because they know that it will engineer or hope to engineer a particular racial result. And, and Justice Kennedy, obviously channeling Justice Ginsburg, says in the Fisher opinion, um, petitioner overlooks the fact that the top 10% plan, though facially neutral, cannot be understood apart from its basic purpose which is to boost minority enrollment. Percentage plans are adopted with racially segregated neighborhoods and schools front and center stage. It is race consciousness, not blindness to race, that drives such plans. Consequently, petitioner cannot assert simply that increasing the university's reliance on a percentage plan would make its admissions policy more race neutral. Well, wow. Um, You can say the same thing about any of the proxy strategies. And if the Supreme Court is, is saying that, you know what, race conscious holistic review is actually better than a facially race neutral but um, you know adopted for racial reasons proxy strategy then I don't know what's left of uh, the race neutral alternatives analysis so, so what about the future I mean I, you can count me in the group that's pretty optimistic um, about the, the future Justice Kennedy has now committed himself uh, not just to the Gruder, Baki, Fisher framework, but to a a vision of its implementation that is actually possible and not just a trap for the unwary. Right? I mean, the you know the question even after Gruder was always, well, you know, um, you, you can do this, but uh, we're going to be watching you like a hawk, and we'll find a way to to say that you messed up. Um, and and that you know has really been discredited now. Um, obviously, if we get you know, two more justices who are hostile, things could really change. But I, I don't know. I think the um, I think the abortion example illustrates that deeply rooted and relatively popular constitutional doctrines are harder to dislodge in the long run than people sometimes hope that they are. Um, and certainly, the sort of acceptance of and enthusiasm for the importance of diversity in broader American society is not is not on a down slope, um, despite some recent events. Um, it's actually alive and well and growing. So I, I, th- I think everything's going to be okay. Um, you know, the case against Harvard alleging essentially a, a quota on, a cap on Asian enrollments, I, I think is is a big potential problem for Harvard. Um, I don't think it's a threat to the doctrine. You know, I, I think that if it turns out that, that some of these schools were essentially treating Asian applicants like white applicants, then I, I don't think that's a constitutional issue at all. That's just a manifestation of how um, these plans are supposed to work. If it turns out that they were enforcing some kind of, you know, cap um, in order to maintain, you know, not just a, a, the critical mass of, of white enrollees that would be justified by uh, the diversity rationale, but of traditional white majority, well, it, you know, that's indefensible under any theory that anybody has articulated. And you can have that conversation within the, the Baki framework, um, you don't really need to, to jettison it. Um, as for the sort of future of the diversity rationale itself, I mean, I, I think that what uh, Professor Laycock emphasized about the breadth of it is really important. Um, it's easy to caricature the, you know, educational benefits of diversity as a compelling interest if you, if you ask, as I think the Chief Justice did at one point, you know, what what exactly uh, does it bring to a calculus class to you know, have a racially diverse calculus class? That, that's not what this uh, you know rationale has ever been about. You know, it, it's it, it's always been more about the dormitories than the classrooms in a lot of ways, uh, particularly at the undergraduate level. Uh, and it has been about uh, in in Grutter and in Fisher the way we articulated it, it was always about you know training a, a new generation of leaders for our society the societal importance and benefits of ensuring that that group is a diverse group uh and you know brought up and and educated in a diverse environment um that is a very robust and important objective that isn't you know going away uh, anywhere and it's firmly entrenched in the supreme court's case law um the the last thing i i wanted to, to say about the future is i i have i've wrestled you know for 15 years now, and and still don't have really an answer to the sort of fundamental question of what it is that the other side wants. Um, I don't understand how uh, what race blind holistic review is is even supposed to be. And, you know, the example I I like to use is a couple of years ago in the Washington Post, there was a front page story about a, a high school student at Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax. Um, somebody, somebody in the room probably graduated from T.J., right? Um, you know, very uh, prestigious public academic magnet school in Fairfax County. And this uh, young man uh, was a white kid, was elected president of the Black Student Alliance at, at Thomas Jefferson. Um, and, you know, the Washington Post thought, and there was a great story behind it, um, how that happened. And, you know, that was interesting enough that it was on the front cover of the Washington Post. And sort of obvious to, you know, everybody, that kid's going to go to college wherever he wants to go to college, right? I mean, he probably got a letter from Yale, you know. Um, Well, why, right? I mean, it's a really great story. But the interesting thing about it is that it's absolutely impossible to think about the strength of that young man's application in isolation from his whiteness. And once you recognize that, it is equally impossible to think about the strength of the application of, um, you know, the uh, young African American woman who is elected president in the student body of her, you know, previously all white high school. Right? It's just not. It just can't be done. Um, if you try to do it, the only way to do it is to, is to discriminate against the minority applicant in a, in a very real and tangible way, and so. When people talk about uh, eliminating race-conscious affirmative action, you know, the United States in Grutter um, said, look, you should just do um, experiential, you should look for experiential diversity and do experiential affirmative action uh, rather than race-conscious affirmative action. And we threw up our hands and said, what are you talking about? I mean, that, that's what we're doing, um, you know, unless you mean that there is some uh, range of experiences that we are required to ignore um, even though they are salient both to that that person's life into the university's mission, that's what we're doing. So I I don't know in the long run that it's even really possible um, to unwind what we've achieved in this area. So, thanks.
2: So, uh, I'd like to uh, thank Ryan and the American Constitutional Society for the opportunity to talk with you uh, here today. Um, You know, like my colleague, Doug Laycock, affirmative action has been with us throughout our entire law school and teaching careers. Um, The first case that actually made it up to the Supreme Court, later dismissed as moot, went there when we were in law school. And uh, here we are 40, 45 years later still talking about this issue. In that respect, it it does bear a kind of startling resemblance uh, to the abortion cases. a central piece of constitutional doctrine that the country has not yet been able fully to resolve. Um, Now, uh, with that, I, I think we can draw the conclusion that both Doug and Scott have drawn that we would have resolved it long ago if with this nearly half century of experience some effective race neutral alternatives had actually appeared. But the lesson of this long experience is that they have yet to materialize. And the question which faces institutions like the University of Virginia, uh, like our own law school admissions process, is what can we do about that now? Uh, I am considerably more pessimistic than Scott is about the current situation because he's offering a reasonable analysis of a difficult problem. This is not in tune with the politics of this country, which seems to be bent on disruption, uh, attacks on elite institutions, and without regard to what the consequences are, merely what the headline or the latest tweet can say about it. So I am much more skeptical uh, about the way forward even though there is, as Doug said, quite a bit to take comfort in in the latest round of decisions in Fisher II. Now, perhaps on a lighter note, I want to say that constitutional law is only a peripheral interest of mine. I really am a civil procedure professor, and I read Fisher II as a civil procedure case, Scott mentioned, on summary judgment and on the burden of proof. Uh, There, what we see, and not to put it in technical terms, I might lose the rest of the audience if I do. What, (laughs) What we see is that the burden of proof on the issue of race-neutral alternatives has shifted substantially over to those who attack affirmative action plans. They have to come up with evidence. And as the court said repeatedly in Fisher II, the plaintiff there attacking the affirmative action plan had failed to provide persuasive evidence of any alternative plan. So I think that is really the good news. There, there is a lot more by way of casting doubt on seemingly race-neutral alternatives, a subject that my colleague Kim ford Mazrui has written on since the beginning of his career. Um, but as a matter of constitutional doctrine, I think the law is fairly stable at the moment. How long that moment will last is a different question. It will probably take several years for these pending cases to get up to the Supreme Court. Um, By that time, the political complexion of the country might have changed. The composition of the Supreme Court uh, might be different. Surprisingly, affirmative action may have drifted off the agenda. We've just been through a wrenching political campaign, and although I tried to pay attention to it, I I didn't notice much discussion of affirmative action. Um, For all of the nativist sentiment that we see opposed to immigration, for some reason it has yet to carry over to affirmative action plans. Maybe it's enough for the current administration that most of the students who benefit from affirmative action plans are already in this country and are documented residents or citizens. Maybe that's enough for them. I don't know. So we will see a slow progression of these cases forward. And that, that brings me to what I think is the central feature of Fisher II is this is no longer simple litigation over the existence of some racial factor in admissions, a kind of clean case that can be decided based on the official admissions papers and pretty clear constitutional doctrine. Litigation over affirmative action now is massive, complex, fact-intensive litigation that can result, as I think it did in Fisher II, in a kind of war of attrition. At one point in the opinion, it's fairly clear that Justice Kennedy believes we're not sending this case back down, although they should have under summary judgment doctrine, because we are exhausted by it, the parties are exhausted by it, We do not see any advantage of further litigation. Now, in that light, we can expect the Harvard and the uh, uh, University of North Carolina cases to take some time as the record is developed and as they require intense resources, not just on the university side, evaluating alternatives to their existing practices, but also on the side of those who attack affirmative action. It's a very different style of litigation, as Scott can attest, you know, where you know gains are measured not in you know, great advances of your position, but simply in taking advantage, inch by inch, of everything the evidence in the legal doctrine gives you. That's what we're going to see. So why am I so worried if universities can now stand back behind the inevitable cost and inertia and difficulty of big-time litigation? Because I don't think we're going to see a private plaintiff bring these cases. I think we're going to see the Trump administration at some point weigh in with its disruptive policies. And that takes me back to a feature of Bakke against the University of California. The very first case where the Supreme Court reached the merits of affirmative action as a constitutional matter. There was a significant argument in that case that the university not only violated the Constitution but also violated a civil rights statute. That civil rights statute prohibits recipients of federal funds from engaging in race discrimination. And there are, in fact, many non-constitutional sources of law that say the same thing. Um, uh, Just another puzzle. There is an executive order, the kind of document our current president loves to sign, that requires affirmative action, and prohibits discrimination by any company that is a federal contractor. President Trump could repeal those executive orders tonight. Yet, I haven't heard a whisper about this being on the president's agenda. I am sure the University of Virginia is a federal contractor subject to those executive But in any event, it's subject to this civil rights statute. I call it Title VI. Now, it'll take some time to change Title VI. Title VI now, by regulation, specifically allows affirmative action. Requires it to cure the effects of past discrimination and allows it for other reasons as well. That's a regulation. Regulations take time to change. They're subject to judicial challenge. My concern is that once affirmative action returns to the national agenda, we have present in the White House many people who think the best thing to do is to make life difficult for elite institutions in this country. And one way to make it difficult is to force them to abandon affirmative action, push through a regulation that says Title VI prohibits affirmative action in all its forms. So I think there's a much bigger adversary who's sort of sleeping on the sidelines at the moment, and that we would do well, as, as Doug said, to prepare ourselves for, kinds of arguments, develop the kinds of evidence that will protect us when we're subject to what I think will be a very ugly attack. um, I'm sorry to uh, cast doubt on the optimism that my former student, Scott Ballinger, has has offered, but I think once we look beyond the composition of the Supreme Court, look beyond constitutional law, we see an array of statutory issues that... uh, that we must cope with. Um, I think we have coped with them over the last 45 years, as I have been a law student, been a law teacher. I think we have found ways to do it, but I think we would be very unwise just to pretend that this current relative calm will continue for any significant Thank
3: you very much. Well, I thought I was going to be the naysayer, but after Rutherglen, I'm cheerleader, I feel. Um, Two administrative notes, if you need to leave. Uh... I know there's 1 o'clock classes, feel free. Um, Also, on your way out or after, I have reprints on the end of the table related to my remarks. Uh, Ryan Snow had asked if we wanted to bring some. If you have trouble sleeping, have them by your bed. Uh, At least uh, it helps my wife. Okay. um, (laughs) I'm going to take uh, some advice from the... uh, this new fancy large print, large print timer. Um, I'm going to take a, uh, some advice from the late and great philosopher John Lennon uh, and ask you to imagine. So the title of my remarks are If Black Lives Mattered, Imagining a More Just Approach to Affirmative Action. I have two general claims. The first, which is the imagining part, is If Black Lives Mattered, Uh, the court's affirmative action doctrine would first permit the intentional redress of historic discrimination against black Americans and second the court would more fully appreciate the distinctiveness of black American culture. My second general claim is the opening our eyes and getting away from imagining to reality and that is what has been happening instead is that uh, the court uh, and our society has largely rejected redressing historic discrimination as a justification for affirmative action and with respect to diversity uh, decreasingly acknowledges the distinctiveness uh, of black culture. On the first point, the imagining part, First, the court would acknowledge um, or that redressing historic discrimination is a compelling interest. Indeed, it's difficult to imagine a more compelling concern than the discrimination imposed on African-Americans and other groups, but I'm focusing on African-Americans uh, as perhaps the, uh, the greatest tragedy of our history. And indeed, conservatives acknowledge such. In fact, their claim for Opposing affirmative action is based on uh, the purported wrongfulness of racial discrimination, and the discrimination uh, as manifested against African Americans for generations uh, is as wrongful uh, as it gets. Those effects uh, reflected in stark disparities between blacks and whites in virtually every category of social and economic well-being continue to persist today and few reasonable observers uh, actually deny that. Uh, so remedying discrimination would be a more compelling interest if we actually had a doctrine that valued uh, black lives. Um, under diversity, if we valued black lives, we would recognize the importance of black culture more than we, more than we do. This is a trend fr- uh, on the court um, Well, I'll get to the the reality now, but for centuries, segregating blacks, imposing uh, difficult life circumstances, uh, severely limited liberties for generations and generations contributed to the development of distinctive cultural traits. You can see this most visibly recently in the African American Cultural Museum in Washington. You can see it in the six-volume set at Alderman Library uh, on African American culture and history. Uh, and this history is is rich uh, and proud uh, and uh, and if if, if that black lives were valued more, that culture would be acknowledged more explicitly under the diversity rationale, such that racial diversity would contribute to cultural diversity in a way that is not uh, currently appreciated. So what is currently appreciated so opening our eyes to the current reality uh, The court has not, uh, well, the court has erred in two ways. First, it has rejected redressing historic injustice. And second, it has diluted over the past few generations, uh, or decades, I should say, the importance of black uh, American culture. On the historic injustice part, the originating purpose of affirmative action and the purpose that I believe animates many supporters of affirmative action is corrective justice, Uh, addressing the consequences of generations of racial injustice against African-Americans. But as Professor Laycock uh, laid out, the court in Bakke uh, took a turn towards diversity. Four justices would have supported uh, redressing injustice. But Justice Powell's opinion endorsing diversity instead has become the justification uh, for affirmative action. Many people have thought, well, this is what we have. It's a substitute. We go with what we have. No big deal. We just um, you know, wink and nod and, and say we'll pursue diversity, but we're really addressing racial injustice uh, in the long run. Uh, that's true to some degree, and I want to acknowledge that uh, any availability of race-based affirmative action does to some degree address racial injustice. I also want to acknowledge that diversity does have uh, important benefits, including the cultural diversity that I don't think is being fully appreciated, but the kinds of breaking down stereotypes uh, that the court has acknowledged uh, and the benefits to society and legitimacy of leaders, I don't discount those, and it's it's better than nothing. It's better than the race-blind uh, alternative, however that might be uh, pursued. But I do have serious concerns about uh, diversity uh, as a Substitute for justice uh, and I have five um, problems first it's it's less compelling despite it being important its doesn't rise to the level of addressing one of america 's grossest injustice uh, uh, that has ever occurred it, It's important it as instrumental values we could imagine a lot of other things that have a lot of value, including other kinds of diversity other than racial diversity and the problem with relying, relying on a policy relying on a a justification that's less compelling is over time that undermines the persuasiveness uh, of affirmative action which could be better justified uh, on justice grounds. Second, diversity is intention at least appears to be intention with equality. So it's viewed as in a sense a collateral purpose, a compromise, equality. Indeed, the court in Grutter even said, we understand affirmative action raises issues of justice. But they were talking about justice in terms of the injustice to the plaintiffs, uh, the white applicants. And and I don't discount that they have reasons uh, uh, to complain. Uh, But the sacrifice they're being asked is not uh, in lieu of some non-equality norm. It's actually in service of equality. If affirmative action is recognized as Remedying a worse injustice than not getting into your first choice of law school, then uh, it's not viewed as a compromise, but rather instead as a, uh, a again a corollary of of equality. And again, by suggesting its intention with equality, it undermines its persuasiveness uh, unnecessarily. Uh, third, diversity is intention with uh, using affirmative action in non-academic settings, uh, even in Academic settings, uh, many people don't perceive it, and understandably so. I think the classroom point is, is very important, but I don't think the court elaborates on that enough, and I think for many people, when they think about diversity in higher education, they think of maybe college, maybe law school, sociology, but really in STEM fields or things like that, it doesn't seem as persuasive, and it seems even less persuasive when you move out of academic settings to municipal services, firefighting, uh, constructions, uh, the service industry. Uh, so if diverse viewpoints in those areas don't seem particularly well-suited to their functions, and indeed many economists have argued that in certain industries having a greater homogeneity of viewpoints can actually uh, encourage more smooth operation, then again it's less persuasive. Uh, so either then it's not used, in which case justice is not uh, pursued in context where it could be, Many of these industries, take police, firefighting, and construction, have long histories of exclusionary policies based on race. But if diversity doesn't justify affirmative action in those contexts, then justice is left uh, unpursuable in those contexts. If, in contrast, affirmative action it is used, and the buzzword diversity is still used, we want diversity in our staff and we want diversity, uh, then people look at it with skepticism. Why do you need diversity for the functioning of this p- type of position? So either race is not used, and therefore justice is not pursued, or it is used, but again, with a kind of obfuscation element that uh, leads to skepticism towards affirmative action in the long run. And finally, uh, the diversity rationale as currently pursued creates a potential illusion of justice. Uh, And I hope I'm not overstating this point, but I do have a a concern that, uh, that it's used in a way that's perhaps too lazy, too blunt. Race is, different racial groups aren't distinguished, within racial groups, I should say. So uh, if you're black, you, you are presumed to have whatever experience that race brings you in. Uh, but that can lead to admission of many recent immigrants uh, who uh, may have very interesting uh, diversity experiences. Uh, but have not experienced the intergenerational effects of historic discrimination. Uh, Indeed, a study at Harvard showed that two-thirds of uh, applicants who benefited from affirmative action either had a foreign-born parent or a white parent. Uh, And I have no objection to them. Both my parents are foreign and my mother's white. Uh, But admitting me does not directly redress the intergenerational damage of historic discrimination uh, as much as admitting people who have been here uh, many generations. I'd like to think maybe my experience uh, as a mixed race person contributes to my interest in the subject and perhaps helpful, uh, but but not as much if you're trying to reach people whose opportunities have been truly uh, impaired by the intergenerational effects uh, of past discrimination. And I think it's not just random. I don't think it's just that we're admitting a certain number of black people, and now, but because we're not distinguishing between legacy blacks, meaning people who descended from uh, slavery and I- more recent immigrant or first-generation blacks, you know, some of them aren't going to be legacy blacks. I think systematically, immigrant blacks are going to be favored for the very reason that it's, it's, it's uh, harmful. That is, the intergenerational effects of past discrimination result in educational opportunities being inferior for legacy blacks therefore they're less likely to have as strong academic credentials on average than uh, recent immigrant blacks. So if you are trying to maximize quality and diversity you actually are going to systematically prefer immigrant blacks uh, over legacy blacks and that comes at the, ex- uh, the expense of justice and I fear over time we may if we only look up instead of down, if we only look up people in positions of power rather than the positions of people in poverty. And we see many black leaders, we might say, well look, we've remedied our past. But if those black leaders are people who don't come from the communities that have been disadvantaged by historic discrimination, then we have only um, convinced ourselves we've, dis- we've remedied uh, injustice uh, when we actually have not. Uh, so, concluding with the, returning to the diversity point, So we're left with diversity, and I agree that the court in Grutter expanded many of the the benefits in in ways that are are useful, but I've also observed over time a lessening of the recognition of black cultural diversity. If you read Bakke, it's clear that Justice Powell's opinion assumes that racial diversity directly brings in different ethnic cultures. Many people think, well, yeah, that's what the court said in Grutter, that's what the court said in Fisher, too. If you read the cases uh, carefully, The court will mention culture in the general statements about why is diversity useful. But when you look at what it says about race, the general uh, position about race is that race is actually irrelevant, that racial diversity helps break down stereotypes by showing that there aren't distinct minority uh, viewpoints. Uh, This is especially true in Grutter, in Fisher 1, I think Fisher 2. Gets a little little bit better, but there's a surfacey description of black people uh, that I think again over undervalues the extent to which we really do have genuine uh, black cultural experiences in this country uh, that um, that fully uh, recognizing would actually enhance the persuasiveness of affirmative action, uh, and this isn't just the court. Uh, we'll just affirmative action. You see this in other contexts. In juries over time since the 80s the court has switched from saying that racially diverse juries promotes uh, diversity of viewpoints to race Race and juries uh, are irrelevant or the race of juries. You see this in voting the court used to acknowledge that voting correlates with voting perspective now the court increasingly says that's a stereotype. In our society generally the more we move towards saying race is skin deep, it's irrelevant, Uh, we should all be colorblind, Uh, that may have aspirational benefits, but to the extent it ignores the reality of black cultural difference, uh, then we're undervaluing diversity uh, when we think of uh, the richness that it can bring to uh, an educational environment. So I'm just about out of time, but in brief, I have how could the court do better, two recognitions and two permissions. The two recognitions that I would hope for the court would be, one, recognize that uh, race, especially combined with things like class, longevity in this country, and geography, uh, predict current and inherited disadvantages from discrimination. Secondly, recognize that race combined with class and geography and longevity predict cultural difference. And then the two permissions are uh, adjust the doctrine to permit uh, race-based affirmative action to redress historic discrimination in ways that the do- current doctrine is, is does not allow. Uh, and secondly, be more tolerant towards integrative policies uh, that can promote cross-racial and cross-cultural uh, understanding, empathy, and solidarity. For example, uh, school integration. The court and parents involved rejected that. That was a mistake. School integration is one of the Uh, most effective ways to promote cross-racial and cultural understanding uh, among young people. So are these suggestions likely? Uh, Perhaps not, but we can begin by
0: imagining. Thank you. We were going to talk a bit among ourselves. We've gone on a long time. Is there anyone who's still here who has a 1 o'clock class and who has a question? And let's open it up. Questions from anybody? George? Um, uh, Scott mentioned briefly the Harvard case. And I'm curious uh, from the panel how you think the law of affirmative action should develop in the context of Asian applicants. And just as an example, uh, Kim has just explained why uh, we should think of perhaps affirmative action as a remedy for. Uh, has historic adjustments. If that's true, then Scott's point saying that
4: if Harvard, in fact, treated all its Asian applicants, just like it treats all its Caucasian applicants, if that were true, then that would be fine. Uh, may not be right, at least based on
3: uh, Kim's claim.
0: Well, I mean, you know, the, the Grutter opinion is heavily about underrepresentation, which I think is what has driven affirmative action policies. Now Fisher de-emphasizes that; doesn't talk about it. Uh, the university made a, or Latham made a strategic decision not to talk about it much in the brief. Uh, but to the extent these policies are about egregious underrepresentation, at most schools Asians are no longer underrepresented. Now, Asian is an absurd grouping; it's everyone from North Korea to Yemen. Um, but, um, and, and some ethnicities within Asians are certainly underrepresented. Um, as long as we lump people together into Asians and Hispanics and African Americans, Asians probably do not look underrepresented. Even though there is a history of discrimination and some of very egregious.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, um, it has always been an important rhetorical strategy of the you know, opponents of affirmative action to try and um, you know say, well, if you're doing that, why aren't you doing this too, right? You know, and um, if you if you get into the business of identifying every possible slice of mankind um, and worrying about underrepresentation of each of them, then you you're very rapidly you know led into the um, you know the impossible conundrum that that there just isn't, would be no space to do anything. Um, you know, if you worried about that, I mean, I, I think that that the answer here is is um, embedded in the tension that you identify in the, the ways that, that the doctrine has developed. Right. I mean, all of this comes from um, concern about underrepresentation from the you know particular groups. That have been the subject of historic discrimination in this country, um, that you know cries out for justice redress, and we have found ourselves with a you know a diversity rationale that can't be limited um, inherently to you know to those groups, and you know it's really just sort of um, you know I don't know we're going to we have to work our way through it.
3: Yeah, yeah I actually. I think the, the Asian issue is, is, a, is a real a real problem. I think it, it's not done in a, well, in a way that's probably fair, uh, I think. It, it depends on what the purpose being served is. If the purpose is remedying injustice, then there certainly has been discrimination against uh, certain uh, Asian nationalities in our history. The question would be, has it, is there a way of kind of roughly identifying which communities have been intergenerationally affected. With African-Americans, once you go back a certain number of generations, it's virtually inevitable that they've been impacted. But if that can be done, then um, those groups would have a claim to to remedial uh, affirmative action. If the goal is responding to more economic disadvantage, uh, lumping all Asians together is also uh, uh, inaccurate and and unfair. in part because, you know, Hmong or Vietnamese might be very economically disadvantaged compared to Japanese or Korean immigrants, but if you lump them all together, you're not recognizing that. And in fact, by lumping them together, there may be a sense of, oh, look, we have enough Asians, so we don't need any more, and if they, if, if the more economically disadvantaged immigrants are also less likely to be as academically strong, then they are in a sense being, uh, marginalized even more uh, in their ability to, to qualify for admission because they're being grouped together with other Asians. And similarly, if the issue is diversity, again, there's so much diversity among Asian nationalities that lumping them together, I think, um, you know, is, it grossly overstates the degree to which there's, there's commonality. So I, I think it's a real issue. And what, one issue, I, I don't know the, how reliable this is, but I've read some studies that suggest that they're not being treated just like whites, and, and you acknowledge that would be a yeah. problem. That uh, if you're if you're Asian, it's even more difficult based on your credentials to get in, and it's pretty difficult to see why that's fair.
1: Yeah. I, I just want to put briefly, I mean, I, I think you know the, the law ought to be, or at least the way we have articulated it in these cases, the law ought, ought to be that if there is some reason to worry that a particular group, however you slice it, will be systematically underrepresented. Um, in the ordinary process, then then the process ought to worry about them. You can't worry about groups that, for which there's no reason to think that they will be systematically underrepresented. And so, you know, the burden is sort of a, to identify what that group is. right to
4: follow up, um, is there room in the policy like that in Fisher and in the Supreme Court's ruling in Fisher for a policy that would reach a little bit deeper and make distinctions like, you know, say, Zipton, you
0: black and between Hmong and, and Korean? Well, the, <clears throat> I mean, you yeah. There is, but as, as Scott says, the more groups you try to take account of, the, the more complicated and unmanageable it, it gets right and and I think you know when we talk about underrepresentation, we can't mean they are three percent of the population only two and a half percent of the class it's got to be substantial underrepresentation and you know and if you think about Texas, you know they you know African Americans and Hispanics and American Indians are nearly half the college-age population of the state and about 20 percent of the student body. That's, that's serious underrepresentation. Um, the more you try to achieve exact representation, the more it looks like a quota, and the court is clear that that's unconstitutional. Yes? So, actually okay, I, I had a question about <coughs> what
3: happens after uh, a vote of action. Um, and I'm thinking about that in the context of, so I spent most of my graduate career at Michigan, Uh, practice, of course, but it's also the site of this large series of protests about being black at Michigan, um, which focused on what happens after a university says that diversity is the reason for affirmative action. The amount of diversity work that has to be done is then placed on the black students in the incoming classes to make those connections to make
4: that cultural argument that Kennedy is making happen. And I was wondering whether in litigation or in uh, thinking through these policies, whether that aspect has come up.
2: Well, I I have heard, you know, these arguments for several decades. Um, And I think they they fit into a, a larger theme which is <clears throat> this problem, whether it's in devising a policy or, you know, integrating students into the scholarly and social community of the university, is not one that you know, It's not subject to a one-shot um, solution. And, you know, it, there's really a need for continued attention to the issue. Um, it, it, it's just what. Doug said about Texas before the recent affirmative action plan, isolation of, of racial groups within the university can, can cause problems. Whether they rise to a constitutional dimension, I don't know. But you have to pay attention to it, um, just as a matter of educational policy.
1: I mean, it has been a... a consistent theme in these cases going back all the way to Baki that that one of the reasons why you might you know want to worry about having something like a critical mass of uh, students from particular ethnic groups on campus is that that's the only way to ensure that, the, that they don't feel like spokespeople you know that, that the burden is not all on them if you only have one person in the sea of white faces then they feel unjustly feel this burden of responsibility Gordon when he was president of Utah State
0: University, Kermit Hall was once asked if Utah State had a uh, affirmative action program, and his answer was, um, "No, but uh, we'll think about it as soon as we turn someone down." <laughs> <laughs>
4: in other words, yeah, right. The yeah. And, University. and I wonder if, if in one sense, Scalia's dissent didn't have a good point, but like, this whole discussion seems to have been focused on. Why aren't there more African Americans at the University of Texas Law School rather than why
0: aren't there more African Americans in ABA accredited law schools? In a world where we have you now many law schools that are perfectly good and accredited are taking essentially everyone who applies, isn't this sort of isn't this sort of misdirected the sort of
4: larger justice issue? That racial justice is about getting into an elite law school. Not about creating a climate for more people
0: from minority groups enter the legal profession. Well, it, it I mean it's clearly true, this is only a problem for selective institutions. Um, and and people can go to lower ranked universities. And and I, and I think there are two things to say about that. One is there is a clear advantage to graduating from a more elite institution, and, and if we're talking about a future leadership class, um, we need minority students graduating from the top schools, and and you know some people will graduate from Utah State and go into great careers, but it's harder, and um, and you know and and the the mismatch uh, critique that students are placed in schools where they can't compete, that's greatly exaggerated. But if you do too much of a affirmative action, that becomes true. You can put kids in classes in schools where they can't compete. Um, But uh, a sensibly managed affirmative action plan that puts more minority students into elite institutions produces more minority leaders going forward. I think that's clearly true. But the other thing about this and and what drives a lot of the litigation is, it is about the legitimacy of these institutions. People do not want their elite state university to be all white. Now, they don't like the means that are necessary to keep it from becoming all white. Uh, affirmative action is pretty unpopular in opinion polls, but the alternative is also unpopular. And, and and if you look at the experience of the schools where affirmative action was taken away um, at Texas for a while, at Berkeley, uh, at, at Michigan by state constitutional amendment, um, those schools get condemned as racist institutions because they are too white. And, um, you know, the, that's not a racial justice concern, but I think the legitimacy of our uh, selective institutions is also uh, a, a genuine issue here, and it's certainly part of the motivator for schools to litigate this so so fiercely.
1: I mean, I, I think that there's a, there's a deeper critique, you know, embedded in your in your question and in in Justice Scalia's observation, which is why are we so obsessed with having highly selective institutions at all? Right? I mean, this is this is a phenomenon of the last forty or fifty years that we so carefully sort. Students by narrow SAT bands, you know, or LSAT bands, into, um, you know, ever more differentiated and and elite institutions, and you know, maybe in some ways we'd be a better society if we didn't do that, uh, and it would solve some problems. But since we do, you know, the idea of uh, and, and since it really does matter to outcomes for people and for our country, the idea that it would be okay to just cascade the minority students, you know, into a different group of schools. It's just
3: I'm going to go back to uh, Baki and a rationale that that the court did not um, uphold, in part for evidentiary reasons, but one of the reasons the medical school wanted a diverse uh, class was in order to benefit underserved communities through the graduates. So, the, from a justice perspective, probably the people who've been most impacted by uh, historic discrimination aren't in reach of going to an elite school for kind of the mismatch point Doug was mentioning. Uh, especially living in um, poor urban and rural, uh, uh, highly segregated areas. Uh, but people who graduate from elite schools are in a position to uh, to help those communities. And there's some reason to think race and possibly other ways of, of selecting people could predict who are the kinds of people who are most likely to in turn benefit those communities that, for justice reasons, deserve it. Uh, and um, I should give credit to Kevin Brown and, and Janine Bell at, at Indiana University have written an article called um, The Demise of the Talented Tenth. And the Talented Tenth is a, is a, is a point that W.E.B. Du Bois made that you know, the, the most uh, successful uh, blacks, roughly the top 10%, have a responsibility to to help and lead the rest of the people. And so they argue that uh, there's empirical support for uh, if legacy blacks graduate from elite schools, they're more likely uh, to uh, then devote um, either their professional time or personal time toward helping underserved minority communities. So there can be a relationship, kind of indirect, through who's selected to the top schools and ultimately helping the most needy communities. Yes, ma'am. Uh, moving to sort of that uh,
4: idea you said about uh, representation for the sake of justice rather than uh, representation, um, I wonder if you guys will hear me with this question. I don't know if any court has ever discussed this, but sort of what your opinion would be on the U.S.'s obligation to... Uh, increased representation for the state of justice when it comes to uh, sort of immigrants internationally from countries that the U.S. has a direct role in sort of creating a, a environment where they, they have to leave, come to the United States and work economically advantaged and sort of uh, face discrimination from the general public and general, uh, are coming specifically from those countries that the U.S. has a role in and then and then sort of the broader issue of countries that the U.S. doesn't have a role in and maybe we think that, you know, that has a that our citizens now, or, or at least our um, residents, um, benefit from our institutions and expect to
1: you know, serve our society. I have an observation. Even, even Donald Trump apparently agrees with that. Um, because you, you can see the, um, the, the big difference between ex- executive order travel ban number one and travel ban number two is that he took Iraq off the list. Because everybody understands that, that, that we broke that. right, and, uh, and that we have a special responsibility to... Refugees from that country, particularly people, who help, uh, but but even just generally. Right.
0: Anybody else? Yeah. Um, so I guess my,
4: my question is uh, <coughs> is how what the implications I guess are for affirmative action outside of higher education because it strikes me, especially at the point, of correct justice that you know if we're talking about keep maintaining quality, you know, of the students as uh, Professor Laycock mentioned. It's one of the goals they had at University of Texas. But one of the issues is that, you know, especially minority communities have been disadvantaged to get locked into a cycle where, you know, they're stuck in schools that are, you know, underperforming schools, and it's hard for them to get out of that cycle and into those, you know, competitive, uh, you know, at least the schools and the tests. And so, you know, it seems to me that the other issue is kind of like what's going on before you even get to college, and then afterwards, what happens when you get? is equally important, but I think that these issues of affirmative action are not something that's just limited narrowly to higher education and has a lot broader implications. So I was wondering if you could discuss where you think these rulings take us outside of the higher education context at all.
2: Well, I think as, you know, as Doug said about you know, the Grutter against Bollinger, I mean, one of the driving forces behind that decision was the statements of business in the military that our institutions have to be integrated Um, and unless we start earlier uh, at the educational level we won't have you know the diversity we now need I I would say to adopt Scott's hopeful vein (laughs) for a moment I think there is a lot of inertia once you get a representative group within an institution Um, you know I can't for instance, see going back to the kind of law school I attended, where, and it was Berkeley, uh, where you know, 20 percent of the class was female. I, I just can't see going back to that world because, you know, people and uh, both in the majority and in the you know the disadvantaged group, you know, are are used to seeing a lot of different faces and hearing a lot of different voices so I think that's you know uh, that's the good news if I can
0: inject a ray of optimism (laughs) yeah I I, no one should assume that affirmative action is a solution to our problems of inequality or of underperforming schools Um, you know by the time you get to the university admissions process you've either had a decent education or a great education or a terrible education and and and, you know only so much can be done about that so think of affirmative action as trying to bump everybody up a few points in the distribution to increase minority representation all the way up um, but we need a different solution for non-performing failing schools in, in in minority communities and you know we're not doing very well at that and we're not we, we need to take that much more seriously but affirmative action is not going to fix that right affirmative action Gets gets tagged on at the end, and it and it helps a little bit at the margins, but it it doesn't address the fundamental problem. Um, getting more minorities into leadership positions may make it more politically possible to address the the fundamental problem, but that that's a very long-term and speculative and indirect effect.
1: I, I think it's a really important uh, and interesting question <coughs> about you know what comes after college, right? Because the, you know, corporate America and, and everything else have sort of, you know, embraced the diversity rationale, which was articulated in an educational context, you know, and run with it very enthusiastically in the corporate context, and, you know, the Supreme Court has not said that that's okay, um, and so there, you know, there are Title VII issues, you know, uh, inevitably, um, coming down the pipeline, you know, law firms, our clients insist on, you know, diverse teams in, in all contexts and, and whatnot, um, and we're all very, very, very committed to that, and I think it would be very difficult to dislodge um, if you know the law changed in some sort of a way. The um, the I just want to go back to the military leaders' brief that you you referenced in Grutter because not many people know this, but it's very, very powerful. The, the a group of retired generals and former heads of the service academies filed a, a brief in Grutter that had a huge impact. Um, you know, making the, the observation that the Army has concluded that the majority of American officers who were killed in Vietnam were killed by their own men, in no small part because of the gigantic racial chasm between the officer corps and the enlisted ranks in that conflict. And the Army has concluded that it cannot fight as an institution unless it has a, um, an integrated officer corps. And, the, and that broadly integrated higher education in this country uh, is an essential precondition to the integration of the officer corps period full stop and you know i don't know is that a different rationale is that you know a, a compelling interest in national defense that the court has never really had to you know confront but there's a lot there
0: you know w- w- one thing in the employment context is that for the most part rejected job applicants do not sue they get another job somewhere else and and in Professions think I'm a network. It's actually terrible for your career to be the guy who sued. Um, And I'm not sure students rejected for university admissions sue either. This litigation is ideologically driven. It is organized by uh, uh, ideological groups to go out and recruit the plaintiffs. And for whatever reason, they have chosen to focus on university admissions and they've not organized similar litigation against corporate hiring. Uh, That could change. yeah, I think you know, what, what they sue, what they challenge depends in part on what they win, and they haven't been winning, which is, uh, from our perspective, a good thing. But you know, if they had succeeded in getting affirmative action held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court on the grounds that they were race-neutral means, the next lawsuit would have been to challenge the race-neutral means. The 10% law is racially motivated, has a disparate impact, and, and it was designed to. It, it has an unconstitutional racial purpose, therefore it's unconstitutional. They haven't filed that lawsuit because they haven't cleared the ground for it by winning on the underlying issue. And they haven't moved on to employment because they're still fighting about um, university admissions. I mean, all, all of that could change. I don't know how these people make their strategic decisions, but there, there's not been much litigation about affirmative action and employment since the late 70s, since the eighties. Anybody else? Yes. Uh, I have a question
4: for Professor Ford on um, the distinction between uh mentioned between legacy African Americans and sort of second generation immigrants.
3: Mm-hmm. Um my question I guess my worry is,
0: wouldn't
3: we be minimizing on the other discrimination by not doing this? It? Yeah, it's a fair question. And, and, uh, to elaborate, I, I would say, the goal is to look beyond just race to the likelihood that, uh, that you've been someone who's been impacted by So that could include non-legacy blacks, um, but it would probably assume that uh, depending on how many generations you've been here, uh, what community you've grown up in, um, perhaps there could be a, looking at the educational background of your family, that there would be uh, an, an effort to try to prioritize people who've been impacted by discrimination and legacy blacks, I think would, would probably get a priority but I don't mean to kind of, I wouldn't want to exclude the possibility of considering that discrimination has impacted a first-generation person. And I agree that each generation you can get sucked into the pathologies of American uh, racial culture so that you can be impacted um, even if you come from well-educated parents who are were, who were immigrants. Uh, but But I also want to acknowledge that there's a difference. I think to avoid the kind of Breaking up everyone into line drawing. At some point, you, you draw a line for the most victimized group in society. If you start saying you want to help everyone who's been victimized at all, then it becomes unworkable. So there's a degree to which multiple generation Black Americans, uh, especially who've lived in in certain communities, have been so like are so likely to have been severely impacted by the intergenerational effects of discrimination, that it's it's kind of a workable way to prioritize resources. Um, you know, I
0: I think I agree with that. But the doctrine now pushes the other way. The court says you can't consider just racial diversity. You have to consider all forms of diversity. This is a corollary of drawing it all from Powell's opinion. Um, and you can give more weight to race. You don't have to give equal weight to every diversity factor, they say. But you have to consider everything. And that has practical consequences. So. So in in Texas before Hopwood, the affirmative action program targeted African Americans and Mexican Americans. Was not Hispanics. We said the historic discrimination in Texas, the historic obligation of the state is to Mexican Americans. We don't care so much about Cubans or Guatemalans or Argentinians. Um, and that, and, and the judgment was after Grutter that has to change. We have to consider everybody. Uh, but we plainly gave more weight to to some minority groups than others. I, this, was, uh, this point was raised by another question
2: about exactly how should we, we treat immigrants. And I just want to say that you know, my, my acquaintance with the law in this area is absolutely schizophrenic. I mean, this country, on the one hand, welcomes immigrants and then excludes some immigrants. Or you know, can't take account of race, except s- seemingly in the immigration context. Where it's only by statute passed in the nineteen sixties that we you know abolish racial quotas for immigration to this country. So there is, I think, a you know a, a significant gain, in my view, in spreading the diversity rationale out, you know, so we can absorb you know, the many millions of people who still come to this country, no matter what the current administration does. You know, there will be more immigrants. And, and we well, you know documented immigrants uh, and it, the the real question is how to you know absorb them into American society. We don't want to have these dysfunctional uh, situations that now seem to be promoted in Europe where in some countries you know, recent immigrants are in a ghetto. It's the wrong way to go.
0: anybody else? <clears throat> Okay, we've got a question you were too shy to ask. We'll be down here for a few minutes, and uh, otherwise you can uh, go back to business.